When Christians read the Bible, the understandable focus is almost always on the nice parts. The problem is that there are parts of the Bible that aren't so nice. And those parts are starting to get a lot more attention. Seemingly strange commands condemning tattoos? Verses that seem to endorse slavery? How about the verses telling women they should submit and remain silent and can't say anything in church? What do we do with all the verses that make it feel like you're being forced to choose between the Bible and science? How do we make sense of all this? Because it's all there in the Bible. so good to see you. If we've never met, my name is Jay, and I'm a part of the team here at Westgate. And a big, hearty welcome to all of you who may be hanging out in our tent or you're watching online. We're so glad you're joining us. And uh, man, it's so good, you guys, to be back in this room with you and to sing together. Yeah. Um, I didn't know if I could come up here and preach. I was like so moved hearing you sing it was like hyperventilating over there. I was like, I'm going to pass out. Somebody else. Dave Tish, who's over here. Dave, come on up here. Jay's passed out. Um, yeah, so good. So good. So uh, healing. And um, man, it's just so rich. So thanks for coming. And again, everybody online and in the tent, we're, we're really glad you're here too. Like the bumper says, if you were here with us last Sunday, you know that we just started a brand new teaching series called How Not to Read the Bible. And the title of the series is like, a, it's a little bit uh, deceiving. It's easy to misunderstand because what we're not saying is don't read the Bible. Actually, we're saying the opposite. We're actually saying, no, let's, let's read the Bible, but like, let's really read the Bible. Because uh, if you were here last week, what you caught um, from Steve's teaching here at Saratoga was that the Bible is truly, emphatically, the Word of God, that it is God-breathed, and that God speak to us, speaks to us and into us today through His Word. And it, it's, it's alive, and it cuts through bone and marrow and joints and soul and spirit, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. But it's also a library of 66 ancient literary words. It's written across 1,500 years by 40-plus authors in cultures that we are totally unfamiliar with today and in three different ancient languages. And so there's a lot of work to do for us to be able to engage and receive from God all that he has to give us through his word. And so for the next month or so, we're going to journey and deep dive into this incredible gift that is the word of God. And we're going to ask really tough questions because there are sections of the Bible that on the surface are really confusing and even difficult, right? Is the Bible, uh, like, does it counter science? Is the Bible in, in uh, misalignment with science, with modern science? Is the Bible misogynistic? Why are there parts of the Bible that sound like it's, like, really anti-women? Or why is God so violent? It seems like he's even, like, vindictive and murderous at certain points in the Bible. And then ultimately, why does the Bible say that Jesus is the only way? It seems quite intolerant to say Jesus is the only way. So we're going to get into all of these really on the surface challenging complex topics. But as we do, we're going to discover incredible hope and beauty and goodness in this complex, messy, and beautiful and transformative literary work and God-breathed word that we call the Bible. 
And today, we're going to dive into a very particular topic. And for us to do that, I want to open by just encouraging and lifting our spirits with a very particular quote. This is a quote from uh, the mid-20th century. And I think it's going to really encourage you and sort of focus your hearts and minds. Here is the quote. I fell down on my knees and thanked heaven from an overflowing heart for granting me the good fortune of being permitted to live at this time. I believe that I am acting in accordance with the will of the almighty creator. I am fighting for the work of the Lord. This is like, man, may this be the prayer of our hearts, right? That we would be working and moving in, in the will of God, the almighty creator. That if we fight anything, we would fight for the work of the Lord and that we would be overflowing with gratitude. The problem is this quote is from Adolf Hitler in his book, Mein Kampf. Hitler would go on to cherry pick Bible verse after Bible verse in the mid 20th century to justify the murder of over 6 million Jewish men, women, and children. He did this primarily driven by what he conceived to be a Christian biblical message. It doesn't take long for you to just peruse a little bit of world history to find that Hitler built his entire regime on what he thought to be biblical truths. But here's the thing. The misuse and abuse of the Bible is not relegated only to Hitler and Nazi Germany. In our own nation's history, there are stories, prominent stories, of the misuse and abuse of Scripture to propagate and propagandize grave injustices and atrocities. This is uncomfortable to talk about, and we're going to wade into uncomfortable waters for a moment, but stick with me because we're going to find incredible beauty and hope on the other side. But first, we have to go through the discomfort. This may not be any more true than when it comes to slavery in our country. When slavery was legal in our nation, that ugly stain on our nation's history, it was, pro it was primarily propagated and propagandized by people using the Bible. Let me read for you a quote from uh, an 1861 um, sermon by a Presbyterian minister named Joseph Wilson. He says this, it is surely high time that the Bible view of slavery should be examined. And at that point, we would say, oh, good. He's going to discover that the Bible is against slavery. But what does he say? And that we should begin to meet the infidel fanaticism of our infatuated enemies. He's talking about abolitionists. Upon the elevated ground of a divine warrant for the institution, he's talking about slavery, the institution we are resolved to cherish. This is a Christian pastor 160 years ago in our country preaching a sermon on a Sunday like this. Now, supporters of slavery and those who were slave owners at the time in the early to mid-19th century, 18th and 19th centuries, in fact, they didn't just whip up this sort of um, thinking out of thin air. They read the Bible. They read verses like Exodus 21 where it says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. 
Or Leviticus 25, when it says, your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you, you may buy them as slaves. Or Ephesians 6, slaves, this is New Testament now, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Or in Titus chapter 2, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. In the the 18th and 19th centuries, Christians who supported slavery didn't just whip up biblical support out of thin air. They were reading the Bible. So the question for us today is, what do we do with passages like this? Now, this may not be a point of dilemma for you, but here's what I can tell you. In the secular world, and in particular, uh, the rise of the new atheists, names like uh, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, uh, Michael Shermer, you may know some of these names. These types of verses are used today prominently to call Christianity and the Bible archaic and barbaric. So what do we do? Are they right? Does the Bible endorse and support slavery? A few thoughts. First, I would suggest to you that when we read the Bible, and we talked about this last Sunday, when you read the Bible for what it is, truly a library of books telling one unified story that leads to Jesus, what you discover very quickly is that God did not create nor intend slavery. People created slavery. In fact, when we go to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the opening pages of the biblical story, what we find is that there is no slavery. There is no such hierarchy where some are greater than others, where some are elevated in status uh, amongst humanity over and above other human beings. That does not exist. In fact, at the beginning of the biblical story, what do we read? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, God created humankind... In his image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In Christian theology, this is a concept known as imago Dei, which means the image of God. What that means is that God's original intent and design was for all human beings to be treated as those who bear his image, imbued with the dignity and value that God gives. Slavery, which strips away another human being's dignity and value, was not intended nor created by God. Slavery enters the story after Genesis chapter 3, which is when sin, human rebellion against God and his plan for human flourishing, when sin enters the story, slavery and so much more enters the story. So God did not create nor intend slavery. And I would suggest to you that the biblical texts that read like God's support and endorsement of slavery are actually God's methodical deconstruction of slavery. Let me give you an example. Just a moment ago, I read for you Exodus chapter 21, verse 2. You remember this? Where it seems like God is saying, hey, you can buy a Hebrew slave. He's going to serve you six years. This was actually normative behavior in the ancient world, to buy slaves. It was an economic system. We'll talk more about that here in a moment. But if you continue reading Exodus chapter 21, verse 2, God then does something that was so not normative and incredibly progressive for the day. He says this, also in the seventh year, 
he, the slave, shall go free for nothing. In the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, if you were a slave purchased by a master, you belonged to that master for life. You were their property. And yet God enters the story as early as Exodus chapter 21, and he changes the game. You see him methodically begin to deconstruct the slavery systems of the day. He says, listen, I know in your culture right now, everybody just buys slaves and you have slaves forever. But you as my people, here's how you're going to operate. Yes, you can get slaves. You can have a slave. You can buy a slave. But in the seventh year, you've got to release them and set them free. Now, this does not mean slavery in the ancient world was a good thing. It wasn't. What it does show is that God is moving the trajectory of the story forward. That he's changing things methodically to deconstruct what is happening. And in a moment, we will see where that leads. In fact, if you continue down Exodus chapter 21 and verse 16, God does something else really, really um, provocative for that day and age. He says this, also, whoever kidnaps a person, whether that person has been sold or is still held in possession, shall be put to death. Now, in a week or two, we'll talk about why God sounds so violent sometimes. Because, like, God putting, calling someone to be put to death, that sounds really violent, right? How do we make sense of that? We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But for now, what I want you to see is that God essentially says, you cannot kidnap someone and make them your slave. Slavery is um, an accepted normative behavior in the ancient world where people would buy and sell. It was an economic system. But to steal someone and make them your slave, to kidnap someone against their free will, God says no. That is a huge no. Which actually leads us to the second point. I would suggest to you that slavery in the Bible and the slavery of modern history have distinct differences. Now again, I have to be clear here. What I am not saying is that biblical slavery was good and we should return to the ancient ways. No. In fact, the Bible itself doesn't want that. Again, we'll see that in a moment. But the, the word slavery, when you and I as modern Western Americans hear the word slavery, there is one predominant image that floods our imaginations. What is it? It's the transatlantic slave trade. This incredibly painful and, and evil blemish on our nation's history. When primarily European slave traders went to Africa, kidnapped men, women, and children, boarded them on boats, brought them primarily to the Americas to sell them as property to the wealthy. That's the imagery we have in our minds when we think about slavery. This is an incredible evil and injustice in our nation's history and a reality around the world still to this day. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But here's the thing. When you read the word slave or slavery in the Old Testament and in the New, the imagery should be different. Because in the ancient world and in the first century Greco-Roman world, slavery, the word slavery, meant something quite different than what floods our imaginations with the transatlantic slave trade. Here's what I mean. First, the word for slave or slavery, both in the ancient Hebrew and Koine Greek, is a word that is much more broad than the American English word slave, in which we think, again, about the transatlantic slave trade. 
In fact, in the New Testament, the Greek word for slave, doulos, the better translation is not slave, but servant. When you go to the time of Exodus, the ancient Near Eastern world, the reality is most people at the time who were slaves voluntarily sold themselves into slavery to make a living. Sometimes slaves were people who had to enter into servanthood or slavery to pay off a debt. It was common practice in the ancient Near Eastern world for impoverished parents to sell their children into servanthood or slavery in order to ensure their children's survival. Again, we are not saying ancient Near Eastern slavery was a good thing. It was not. But it also was not what we most often think of when we think of slavery. When you get into the New Testament, again, that Greek word doulos, which means servant or bondservant, here's what most biblical scholars think and most um, just uh, cultural historians think that in the first century Greco-Roman world, when the New Testament story is unfolding, um, conservative estimates say that one in three people in the ancient Greco-Roman world were technically slaves or doulosses, servants. Some estimates put that number at 50%. Slaves or servants or or doulosses, bond servants, it was common practice. In fact, in most Greco-Roman cities and towns, if you needed a doctor to, to help with medical issues or a lawyer so that you can go to court and be defended by a professional, you were going to see a slave. Most doctors and lawyers had their schooling paid for by wealthy benefactors. And then afterwards, that doctor or that lawyer was essentially hired by the benefactor as a slave or a servant or a bond servant to be the medical doctor and or the lawyer for that particular family. And if they were um, good, kind citizens for, to provide medical services and uh, uh, law, lawyer services for that town or that city or that neighborhood. So uh, one in three up to 50%, including doctors and lawyers in the first century world, were slaves. Here's the other key difference between um, biblical slavery and what we think of when we think of the transatlantic slave trade. In the biblical times, both Old Testament and New, slavery was not race-based. It was an economic system. It was not racial. People were not kidnapped from their homes based on the color of their skin and then forcefully sold into slavery. It was an economic system in which predominantly people would choose to enter in to make ends meet, essentially. Again, not a good thing, but not the same as our sort of predominant imagery when it comes to modern day slavery. Now, finally, this is the most important point. The biblical story reveals God not only deconstructing slavery, but you see God moving people away from slavery as a whole. As early as Exodus 21, God says that if you kill a slave, then you must be punished. You, the slave owner, even though that's your property technically, you cannot kill a slave. This is an unheard of right, uh, an act of justice for slaves in the ancient world. Later in Exodus 21, verses 26 to 27, it actually says that if a slave or a servant is permanently injured, that slave or servant must be set free. 
In fact, this is crazy. If you go to Deuteronomy 15, God says that when you free your slaves, like every seven years when you let your slaves go free, don't just let them go. Give them livestock, supplies, and I am not making this up. Give them wine from your wine cellar. Like, and he says, I'm, I'm not making this up either. Look up Deuteronomy 15. He actually says, your choicest wine. Like God says, when you free your slaves, do not give the two-buck chuck. Give the 96 Merlot from Napa Valley. What, I'm not, a, I don't know wine. But you know what I'm saying, right? Is that good, 96 Merlot? It's probably good, right? You know what I'm saying, yes? Like God says that. In the ancient world, unheard of, you see God slowly trickling in human value to those that were considered in the ancient world property. And then we get to the New Testament. There's this story, right, of a guy named Philemon. And Philemon is, um, he's, he's a wealthy man, he's a Christian, and he belongs to the, the early Christian church in a city called Colossae. You know the New Testament book Colossians? That's a letter that Paul wrote to the early Christians in Colossae. And, and um, Philemon is like one of the benefactors of the church in Colossae. Now, he's wealthy, and he has a lot of servants or slaves. And there's this thing that happens. He's got this slave named Onesimus. And the story is not told in great detail, but what most scholars, as they read between the lines of the biblical story, what they believe is that Onesimus runs away. He runs away from Philemon. Now, he doesn't run away because Philemon is mistreating him or abusing him. Most scholars think, because of a couple of texts in the letter, that Onesimus runs away because he steals money from his master. So there's a slave named Onesimus. He steals money from his master Philemon, and he runs away. And then when he runs away, by God's divine providence, Onesimus runs into, guess who? The apostle Paul. And Onesimus becomes a Christian. And moved by the Spirit of God at his own wrongdoing, Paul encourages him, Onesimus, you need to go back to Philemon, your master. You need to apologize, repent, confess, make amends, reconcile. And then what does Paul do? He writes a letter to Philemon to instruct him on how Philemon is to receive his former slave who had gravely wronged him as he returns. This is what he says. Philemon, uh, verses 15 to 17. Paul says, perhaps the reason he, Onesimus, was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back, and here's a funny word, forever. What does he mean? Paul explains. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. If you consider me a partner, welcome him, Onesimus, as you would welcome me. Paul sends back this slave who had wronged his master, and he says to the master, listen, receive him not as a slave anymore, but as a brother. Receive him the way you would receive me. Welcome him the way you would welcome me. That word welcome in the original Greek, it's a word laced with a sense of hospitality and taking care of the other. 
Paul is essentially saying, I know Onesimus has wronged you, but as he returns to you, he does not return as your slave. He returns as your brother, and I want you to be hospitable and to be caring, to welcome and receive and accept him the way you would me. The great theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way, that Paul urges Christians to welcome one another across all social and ethnic barriers, insisting that the church will thereby function as the advanced sign of God's renewal of all creation. The church was the original multicultural project with Jesus as its only point of identity. Listen, it was Christians moved by this reality, a rich, robust reading of the biblical story that actually ended slavery in our nation. Just as, nation, just as slavery was propped up in our country by abuse and misuse of the scriptures, it was actually a deep, rich love of the scriptures and the God who is transforming and changing us through the scriptures that led men and women like Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and William Wilberforce and others, Elijah Lovejoy, Beecher Stowe, um, Charles Finney, the list goes on and on. Men and women who were compelled by the incredible vision of oneness that the scriptures give us, who began to read the scriptures in a way that the scriptures began to read them. And they led the movement to end the evil and atrocity that was slavery in our nation. This is why it matters that we don't just loosely look at the texts, but lose ourselves in this beautiful story. And here's the thing. Although slavery in this way maybe doesn't seem like a reality in our culture and on our day and age, the reality is the evils and atrocities of slavery are all around us, literally here in the Bay Area and all over the world. Do you know that today there are still, today, right now in this moment, more than, by most estimates, more than 40 million slaves around the world against their free will, bonded and bondaged, having the life choked right out of them. Um, out of those 40 million, one in four of them are children. Children like my six-year-old daughter and my two-and-a-half-year-old son, children like your sons and daughters. One in four, 10 million children enslaved today. 70% of these um, slaves are women and young girls. And it's not just around the world, it's right here where human trafficking is happening right under our nose, in our very backyard, and you just don't know it. In fact, human trafficking generates upwards of $150 billion a year. This is why today we have a couple of ministry partners and friends of ours out in the lobby. International Justice Mission, IJM, they're doing global work working with local law enforcement officials and lawyers and uh, social workers to literally go into the darkest places and corners of our planet and to literally free men, women, and children from actual, literal slavery today. 
This is why we have our friends from the Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition who are working hard to help us right here in the Bay Area open our eyes to the reality that a $150 billion industry of slavery and human trafficking is not just a story unfolding far, far away. It is happening right here in our backyard. That there's something we can do about it. Listen, it's not even that there's something we can do about it. If we are followers of Jesus, losing ourselves, transformed by the story of the scriptures, there is something we must do about it. So I would encourage you, before you go today, visit their table if you're willing. Find out more, hear their stories, find out the work that they are doing, and jump in and participate. Listen, Paul, the writer Paul he culminates this entire story in his um, beautiful, poignant words in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28. When, when the Bible looks like there are all these passages that endorse and support slavery, when we begin to look at them in context, understanding that the entire Bible is a unified story leading to Jesus, what we discover in Galatians chapter 3 is this, that Paul reminds us in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ, imbued with a value and dignity that only God can give. The theologian Esau Macaulay says it this way, that God's vision for his people is not for the elimination of ethnicity to form a colorblind uniformity of sanctified blandness. What a sentence. But rather, instead, God sees the creation of a community of different cultures united by faith in his son as a manifestation of the expansive nature of his grace. Yes, slavery as we once knew it in this nation is over. But what does this mean for us today? When people say that the Bible is barbaric and it's antiquated and it's archaic, when I read where the story is headed, when I read Galatians 3, you know what I see? I see that the Bible is so far ahead of us. When division and death and fracturing run rampant, not just in the secular world, but in the church. You guys, I cannot tell you how heartbroken I have been literally this past week as I have considered and thought about and come across how divided we have become. That as followers of Jesus, we have forgotten that there is no Jew or Gentile, slave, free, male, female, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, rich, poor, whatever story, whatever background, we are all one in Christ and we have forgotten that incredible biblical vision of what it means to be the family of God. I've been heartbroken as I see the church replicate and mirror the division we see in society as a whole. Listen, the secular world is divided and will always be divided. The church exists to be an emblem and a beacon of unity. This is why Jesus prays that we would be one as he and God the Father are, are one and that in our oneness, the world would see and know that God loves us. 
What does this mean for us today? It means that as we reckon with the often ugly history of our world and our nation, as we are faced with growing discord and hostility, as we grieve death and division in places like Brooklyn Center and Chicago and Indianapolis and even Kenosha just this morning, all in the past week, as outrage culture beckons us to vilify, demonize, crucify the other. Followers of Jesus stand in resilience and resistance to the cultural tides of the day which seek to divide us. We choose grace, peace, love. We act justly for justice. We love mercy to be merciful. We walk humbly with the God who sent his son on our behalf. We mourn with those who mourn, even when they don't look like us, even when they don't sound or think like us, even when their stories are not our stories, their pain is not our pain. It means that though the color of our skin may differ, though our politics may differ, though our opinions may differ, our perspectives, our hopes, dreams, anxieties, fears may differ, we stand alongside one another for we are all one in Christ, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, every ethnicity, every story, any and all who say yes to Jesus, we are all one in him who makes us one, Father, Spirit, Son, make us one, amen.